Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently recorded a bonus episode on Fast X. We have another one in the works on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. This week, I will continue to offer my unyielding and unreserved support to all of my co-hosts, but Patreon subscribers can hear what I really think about the drafts I've been reading of their novels, which are great and beyond reproach. Anyway, uh, this week, uh, we're diving into the films of indie writer-director Nicole Hall of Center, who has only made seven features in a career that started with Walking and Talking in 1996, but as Ron Slater says about his dating life in Days of Confused, it's about quality, not quantity. Hall of Center's observational comedies can be hard to describe because they don't tend to have high-concept hooks, but they each burrow deeply into a theme, and, as we'll discover on this set of episodes... They share a lot in common. Tasha, what are we covering this week? Nicole Holof Center's new film, You Hurt My Feelings, turns on a white lie that's inadvertently overheard, leading to tension within an otherwise happy marriage. In her second collaboration with Holof Center after 2013's Enough Said, Julia Louis-Dreyfus stars as a writer and teacher who's feeling insecure about her first novel, in spite of the steadfast support of her husband, played by Tobias Menzies, who is cheered on every draft. When she overhears a conversation where he confesses that he didn't like the book, however, she's devastated. It feels like a terrible breach of trust between them, and it damages her self-esteem. Self-esteem problems are also the engine that drives Hall of Center's 2001 film, Lovely and Amazing, which leads to a scene in which an actress, played by Emily Mortimer, hears a devastating opinion about herself, though in this case it's solicited. As Mortimer tries to figure out why she isn't deemed sexy enough to get a specific part, other members of her family are dealing with their own insecurities, including a mother, played by Brenda Blethyn, who's undergoing liposuction surgery, and a sister, played by Catherine Keener, who's drifted into her mid-30s without much to show for it. Meanwhile, their much younger, black adopted sister, played by Raven Goodwin, grapples with worries about her weight and identity. So this week, we'll closely examine Lovely and Amazing and reveal all of its little blemishes and flaws. And then next week, we'll say what we really think about You Hurt My Feelings, under the assumption that Nicole Holof Center isn't listening over our shoulders. Stay tuned. Can you believe it? I'm finally gonna get rid of my gut. Well, I don't understand. Nobody sees you naked anyway. Meet the lovely Jane Marks. You're going to look great. He just flirted with me. The guy is your liposuction doctor. And her three amazing daughters. I don't know anyone who would adopt a kid at that age. Your mother, she must be a saint. Is she all right? You know what? She just wants her attention. What did they say about me? I want to know. They said you weren't sexy. I think you're sexy. Can you give me a job? I can have sex with you. You were supposed to contribute once Maddie went to school. I'm trying to sell my art, Bill. Maybe you should just get a job. You know, a job job. I'd like to apply for the job. What do you do? I'm an artist. Aren't you going to give me a smile or something? You're hired. Thanks. I'm going to stand there, and you're going to tell me everything that's wrong with me. That's Elizabeth Marks an aspiring actress played by Emily Mortimer in Nicole Holof Center's Lovely and Amazing. She has just slept with Kevin McCabe, a somewhat unctuous movie star played by Dermot Mulroney, and their post-coital pillow talk is about to take a turn for the real. 
Elizabeth and Kevin first met during a quote-unquote chemistry test for a major role she was seeking, but the filmmakers determined she wasn't sexy enough to get the part. And so now she's standing naked in front of Kevin, asking him to be honest and detailing how he feels about her body. She insists that he's doing her a favor, but when he does what she's requested, she has to hear about her thin frame, her yellow teeth, her untoned arms, and breasts that look droopy from the side. When it's over, she quietly thanks him, puts her clothes back on, and leaves. That's the signature scene in Lovely and Amazing, and to my mind, one of the standout scenes of the current century. And it represents the culmination of a film that's focused on the self-esteem issues that trouble all of the women of the Marx family. While it doesn't get any blunter than having a woman stand naked in front of a man who's casually revealing all of her flaws, Lovely and Amazing is about how these women struggle with these insecurities and sometimes inadvertently reinforce them. The Marxes support and love each other, but even they're sometimes guilty of expressing the same microaggressions that chip away at them all the time. The matriarch of the Marx family is Jane, played by Brenda Blethyn. Jane isn't happy with her body either, and so she's opted to undergo liposuction surgery to carve the fat off her stomach and hips and tighten up the areas where age has loosened her skin. She flirts optimistically with the surgeon, but she comes to regret the procedure, which results in a terrible infection and leaves her hospitalized for days afterward. That leaves her adopted daughter Annie, played by Raven Goodwood, feeling particularly lonely and aggravated. As a black girl brought into a white family, she naturally has some confusion about her identity, and the family's answer is to put her in the Big Brother's Big Sisters program, where she can spend time with a young black woman named Lorraine, played by Anjanae Ellis. The arrangement runs into trouble when Annie admires Lorraine's straight hair and perhaps wonders whether straightening her own hair will make her seem more like her sisters. Hall of Center's favorite actress, Catherine Keener, plays Michelle Marks, whose vague ambition to turn her crafting talents into a decent income have yet to bear fruit deep into her 30s. Frustrated with her husband's hectoring over her inability to find work, Michelle takes a minimum wage job at a one-hour photo place, mostly out of spite, and winds up falling into an affair with a teenage clerk who hires her, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Jane, Michelle, and Elizabeth are all conscious of the self-image problems that plague each of them, and they offer support. That's where the title Lovely and Amazing comes from, when Jane tries to give Elizabeth a boost about the crummy boyfriend who's broken up with her. If he loved you, she says, she'd make you realize how wonderful you are. They're a loving family. They believe that about each other. But believing it about themselves is a constant struggle that Hall of Center details with great insight and humor. We'll talk more about it after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's funny, do you ever wonder what kind of things you might inherit? I mean, your mom's kid and everything, but you've got different genes. You, you could inherit all kinds of things that would make you so different from us. No, I mean better. Like your dad, he could be a genius or something, and your mom, I, who knows what your mom was. My mom was a crack addict. True. But I'm sure she was a lot of other things too. Some of them must be good. Maybe she was a good swimmer. Yeah, exactly. So Nicole Holoff Center is a director who likes to organize her movies around themes, but even in that regard, Lovely and Amazing stands out for hitting the women's self-esteem issue quite hard. Uh, was that effective for you? I mean, as a woman who struggles with <laughs> self-esteem, why would I want to see that reflected on the screen? Why Why would I want to see a, uh, you know, a kaleidoscopic version of uh, things I've actually experienced reflected back at me from a, a wide variety of points of view that examine them with a, a kind saying, of gimlet-eyed, uh, you know, straightness and, and practicality? 
I find it really interesting that when I was prepping for this podcast, uh, I went to kind of read a bunch of reviews of this movie from the time. And because of the time, virtually all of them were written by men. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I read a bunch of different reviews of this movie by by men who were talking about the modern female insecurity with looks. And I I was just like, you, you really, really need to get a woman. I saw, I saw one that called it a chick flick. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when this movie first came out and I saw it, uh, it seemed dangerous in a way you know it it's such a deep dive into this this particular examination of insecurity very specifically women's insecurity and how they project it and reflect it and and require other people to deal with it and push it on other people and i yeah so that the the fact that it's this film is so focused on that topic works for me just fine because it comes at it from so many different directions in so many different ways. I I think it's just more interesting for that. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. And I I definitely found it engaging for all the same reasons uh, Tasha does. I was maybe a little, I don't want to say irked, but I, I guess I noticed the extent to which the movie seems to position these women's self-esteem issues as originating with them slash kind of like passed down through family. Uh, It's sort of like uh, inherited family trauma, especially around their body issues to a certain extent, rather than, you know, kind of the result of, you know, a a, a bigger system in our society's uh, deeply ingrained misogyny and fat phobia. But that I understand is not really what Hall of Center does. She's a sort of a character study filmmaker. And this is very much about, you know, these characters rather than the broader systemic issues that brought them to this place of deep rooted self-esteem issues. And, you know, it is relatable. And I do, I do appreciate, like Tasha says, how it like explores different it from different angles, not just sort of the weight and body image issues, but also racial identity with the the little sister, uh, the adopted sister, who I found that storyline very compelling and probably where the movie gets sort of like its most prickly and real and dangerous to use a, a word that's already been brought up. I, I want to push back a little bit on the idea, though, that it's that this movie doesn't examine where these things come from on a societal level, that it, it's all family. I, I think it's, it's very... I, I, not, yeah, I, I, sorry. I, I, I don't want to say it's all family. I think especially with like the Hollywood aspect and Emily Mortimer's character, it definitely like comes through there more. But um, yeah, c- continue. I, I, I mean, just starting, don't want to overstate Starting with it. that opening scene, you know, where she's mm-hmm. being put on display and uh, she's, mm-hmm. she's a minor actress with a minor part in a minor film. And she's having her her breasts photographed to be in a, a major magazine. And as repulsive as her boyfriend is, his his note about like, what does this have to do with acting does seem pretty, pretty mm-hmm. apt. I think the fact that their mother is in for stomach surgery and like the, the way the surgeon treats her kind of just speaks to a, a larger industry of Taking advantage of women's anxieties and commodifying them and, mm-hmm. and profiting off of them. Uh, I, I think the whole relationship between Annie and her big sister just kind of uh, speaks to different ways that that society like marginalizes black mm-hmm. women and, and puts them into small containers. Sure. Like, I, I think all of these things are touched on extremely lightly, but I do think yeah. they're acknowledged at least. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I I guess that was kind of the, the point I was making is that they're there, they're just like very lightly there in the background. And I think we're encouraged to read these women's issues as, as about them more than about society. But I acknowledge that like it is kind of sprinkling in those ideas in the background. I like that you use the word kaleidoscopic, Tasha, because I really do feel like this film touches on a many different varieties of of uh, the sources of these issues and many different varieties of the issues themselves, but without really, you know, not feeling like schematic or like it has an agenda. It just kind of mm-hmm. naturally emerges from from the stories of these characters. And I also like that these characters are deeply, deeply flawed characters, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, um, each in the each in their own way, but like I, I wasn't a parent 
when I saw this in 2001. I am now. I'm like, boy, Catherine Keener's character, not, not, not a great mom. No. Not, not really. <laughs> Although, it's, uh, one of the biggest laughs in the, in the movie for me is when her daughter wants her to read, read with her. And she wants to watch <laughs> cartoons. And her daughter herself is probably too old for it. But, uh, well, it looked but, like no, a I, really, I, really poorly assembled cartoon, too. Yes, <laughs> that, that too. I was, I was unfamiliar with what, what she was was watching but uh but i mean everyone in this movie is deeply flawed men and men and women but you know the fact that that she navigates all that takes on all that she takes on talking about Holof center here and and then brings it all together that the really graceful ending i mean it, it is you know where you these are people who are there for each other as you as you pointed out and and you know as however inadequate sometimes their being for each other can be it's not going to go away this is a family i, I yeah this is a pretty terrific movie i also like the lightness of it all you know there's mm-hmm. there there's a lot of potentially ugly things here and uh, don't get me wrong i i think there are a lot of flaws in this movie and we can discuss that but just in terms of i could see another movie I'm looking at you, August Osage County. There are versions of this story that would blow it up all into high opera, like like gigantic drama. There might be, you know, suicide attempts or screaming fights or whatever. Like there would be there would be blow ups and probably Annie would, you know, run away from home and try to find her birth mom and maybe she would and and confront her like just big, ugly, heavy drama. And in this case, it's just kind of like we're all kind of unhappy with ourselves and this makes us unhappy with each other. And it's not exactly a a realism focused film, but it just does reflect reality in, I think, an, an appealing and approachable way that just isn't isn't all that common in, I don't know, maybe cinema, <laughs> at least American cinema, even American art house cinema. This is just a very, a very like light and fluffy film about very dark and painful places. Yeah, well, One of the reasons why I asked that first question was, was because, you know, when, when you're kind of organizing a movie around a theme, it doesn't necessarily give it, you don't have that kind of powerful sort of narrative engine in place so you need to find some way to structure it some place for it to go and you also needed to you know in a case like this where you really where that theme is super apparent it needs to be feel naturalistic it does and i think that's kind of the achievement of 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 the movie that that you do know that it is about something but that the individual lives of these characters are credible and not and not simply a, a director who's sort of like you know leading you to a thought right I think it's interesting to hear this described as sort of like a a light movie when like the sort of the main arc that it's organized around is a a life or death scenario, Jane's Mm. liposuction and and resulting hospital stay. And that's kind of what keeps these three sisters in each other's orbits over the the course of, of the film. And Jane's arc is the most literal crystallization of of the self-esteem theme. And I really do like that. That's probably my favorite part of the film, just for how complicated it is in terms of your sympathies, I guess. one of I, I love how they kept noting that the nurses uh, were, or how she kept saying the nurses were, you know, not paying attention to her because she's just uh, there for plastic surgery. You know, it's not like real surgery. And it for me, it really kind of crystallized this idea that we sell women the, this idea that they need to look a certain way, but then simultaneously shame them for it. And and I just I found that very effective in terms of the larger you know project or idea of the film, but you know like she very well could have died. She's on the verge of death, but it doesn't feel like a movie with life or death stakes. And I think that's just that comes down to tone more than anything. And just it does have this very kind of lightly comedic tone, even within the middle of this life and death scenario as they're in her hospital room and, and talking to her. It still does have that, you know, almost self-deprecating uh, feel to it. But uh, it's serious stuff. And I think there's something about like, I mean, what is she? She lose you know this is for what lo- losing 10 pounds i think is what they is yeah what put he, some he loose skin mm-hmm. yeah and put right and some of skin and in, in, in for you know ten thousand dollars and nearly dying right mm-hmm. um yeah you know, i was thinking about 
I mean, when you were talking at the, at the opening about that connection between what the Marxists are going through and, and, you know, society at large and how kind of difficult it is to make that connection. It almost seems to me like that, like it's kind of an off-screen villain mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way, yeah. like, like because, because when somebody wants a procedure like that, you can kind of connect it. You can kind of connect that, make that connection of just like, where do you ha- how do you get to that place right where you're this woman who is who who feels like she has to to to, to do this and go through this and ultimately you know it's it, it's a terrible regrettable experience and humiliating at, at times as well but i think that's kind of where that connection is made so if you can't really if because you kind of think about how you do it like how you would how would you make the story about more than the marxes and i think mm-hmm. it's just kind of like it's because you as an audience member connect to their the way they feel in that way and it kind of has a larger you know and then that, that and then you can kind of connect it to the you know the, the how society sort of uh, operates more broadly which kind of brings me to this question because you know th- there are some interesting moments in the movie i think that are worth noting when the marxes are themselves guilty of reinforcing each other's insecurities is that did you kind of like pick up on those kinds of moments as well oh for sure oh, for, yeah. i mean more than anything i think uh michelle Catherine keener's character mm-hmm. fat shaming annie yeah. which you know there's there's almost two different levels there one is the level on which you know she her own her, her dislike of herself which you know her sister brings up like she just doesn't she doesn't like herself much affects how she deals with this child and how she you know projects this anxiety onto her but uh more so there's just the fact that Michelle is an awful person mm-hmm. you know she she comes across as a racist she comes across as just so petty as to feel like competitive with a child for attention when she says annie doesn't need to wear sunscreen because her oh. skin's already dark like <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah and that's it's it's weird because it, again it's it's just kind of like layered it's like okay on the one hand that's uh just ignorant and on the other hand it's like you're taking care of a child and you haven't done like really really basic research and you're you're taking your own like racial prejudices and just ignorance and it's harming a child who's right in front of you and who you aren't really treating like a person at all but the the scene in the cafeteria is the the one that bugs me where like nobody actually watches what she's eating but then michelle like shames her for it afterwards and is just like visibly disgusted by her and is talking about like how being a fat teenager isn't going to be fun like the way she speaks to annie and not just about uh, about being fat but just kind of about everything she's just so contemptuous and this is an adult in her life who is at times responsible for her well-being you know responsible for looking after her and she just so clearly shows favoritism for her own daughter and disdain for the fact that her mother adopted another child in the first place it's she's jealous she's exhibiting a form of sibling rivalry that also constitutes borderline child abuse it's creepy the way she talks about her mother doing it to because she was being adopting this child because she was being selfish and her friend is still well you know it's still a, a lot of work um i mean the way they say it in front of the other children mm-hmm. you know, you know, children hear everything you, you know it, it's yeah, it's 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 upsetting stuff to to be sure. But I, I like also that it Annie's a tough kid. You know, Annie is not an easy kid to parent. She's you know she lashes out and she is you know extremely you know short tempered and 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 wants what she wants and and uh, you know it, it's a it's just another case of this movie never really taking the easy way with any of its issues or its characters. I mean, there's also sort of a uh, another layer wrapped up in the whole interracial adoption element of it, where this family is to a certain extent offloading this child's education about her her identity, her culture, whatever, to another black woman, you know, who mm-hmm. uh, in in one of my favorite parts of the movie eventually says like, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this. I mean, you know, this is this is too much for me to deal with uh, after. Uh, I think it's right after Annie tells that 
black or Jewish joke, which no, it's uh, after the yeah. swimming pool thing where she's oh, uh, doing right, the dead right. man's float again. Okay, yeah, but um, you know, she definitely uh, witnesses uh, alarming behavior and and things Annie says that I think we are meant to assume she uh, absorbed from from her living situation where you know I mean with Michelle may be more overt about it but I think all the whole family to a certain extent others Annie in a way that she is definitely picking up on uh, like when Jane, when the, their mom says, uh, you know, she she likes her hair, you know, how it is. She doesn't want her to straighten it. And, you know, talking about how her, her birth mom was a crackhead and, they, you know, they saved her life. And there's just a lot of microaggressions that, that Annie has absorbed. And Michelle is kind of, you know, giving the, the macroaggressions. But, uh, you know, it's all a rich tapestry of inherited and passed down trauma. There's an arc, too, though, for Michelle. I mean, I think you get kind of a grace note. Yes. In that lovely scene with the McDonald's. McDonald's that, <laughs> right. And when she compliments on her hair and doesn't really care about what she eats. And I think there's... And know, acknowledges I mean, there's some... that her mom could have been other, something else. You know, she could have been yeah, a good exa- swimmer. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, I th- that, that, that was very nice. Um, Is it, though? I mean, it's like... A more positive moment than Jane looking at Annie and saying, I can barely look at you. I can't stand what you've done with your hair, which is mm. an awful thing to say to an eight-year-old who's experimenting. Right. Like, you know, experimenting with identity, exper- experimenting with presentation. Just like, what a hateful thing for your mom to say. And that McDonald's scene is... A couple small compliments, but it comes in the middle of, you know, her both saying, like, I don't care what you eat, like, eat eat and drink whatever you want. I don't care. I just got arrested. Like, in that moment, <laughs> Michelle is Michelle is dumping her problems on an eight-year-old and looking for sympathy that she doesn't get because she doesn't deserve. And it's it's a, a nice little moment when she compliments her hair and, and really seems to mean it. But at the same time, she is no less malignant a narcissist in that scene than any place else. And ah, you're that's you're being too hard on her. She does, she does some good things in the film. <laughs> I think it, you take what you can get with, with that character. Yeah, you know? I, I think she's just you know. I mean, she's kind of you know re, you know in this kind of regressive moment in her life. It's things are not working out well. Her husband is you know doesn't is not a terribly nice fellow. Uh, that marriage is not so great. Uh, she's got a lot of regrets. Her whatever ambitions she had for herself as as an artist are are you know leading to you know ceaseless embarrassment. How ambitious are those ambitions? Do we think? Well, like, I, mean, like I mean, whatever they are, I mean, they're not leading to anything. I'm I feel like to, those it, little chairs are kind of a litmus test. Like, how do yeah. you feel about the little chairs? I mean, not, I, I love I her, I love I, her I, line is like this shit is cute or whatever it is she says. <laughs> Fifty bucks. Yeah. Though yeah. I'm kind of in, I'm intrigued by the by the uh, wrapping paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the really the fancy the fancy wrapping paper. I would never let anyone tear into it but I, I i like the i like the idea of of uh handcrafted wrapping paper or well, something well, yeah there. for specifically for rich people you know rich and people I, I, who don't, I, don't yeah. care about which, money which, yeah yeah which she says right? yeah and, and I, it's interesting because and also with the tiny chairs you know at, uh, when she's trying to sell them she's like don't you wish we were small enough to sit in these chairs and it really feels like she's like projecting some desires onto the art she's making like she wants mm-hmm. to shrink and be smaller so she makes small chairs and she wants to not work and have money so you know and she makes uh, this artisanal wrapping paper that no one can afford unless they have enough money to not work I thought that was interesting it is. That line is just sort of a rare moment of authenticity, I guess, from her, like it, it, a little bit of whimsy. Like it doesn't seem like something that she's putting on in order to impress people. Like she actually is like saying something that she feels about her art, which feels much more telling than what she says about the the wrapping paper, which is just, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's a cute thing for people who don't care about money. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a there's a cute whimsy to the chair thing, I think. But if she's just now making these chairs and shopping them to one store and she's in her mid 30s, I just I want to know what her artistic ambitions have looked like for the past 
I don't know, 10 years. I mean, when when did she start doing art and and why did she think that she could do this instead of a career? Did she did she have any kind of artistic ambitions when she was younger or in college? Did she take art classes like where is this suddenly coming from? Has she just looked around herself and realized that she's a mother and doesn't really have much else going on in her life and has decided to rebrand herself as an artist? Like there's there's a lot. I feel like you could ask similar questions about any character in this movie that are just like, where is this coming from and who is this person apart from a handful of quirks and uh, a handful of confrontations? I I praised the movie's lightness earlier and I stand by it, but I also just don't think it's very deep or that any of these characters run very Mm -hmm. deep. It's suggestive, though. I mean, it's. I mean, we're we've been just talking just about Michelle for all of this time, and and I I don't even know if like, you know, she she'd be you know a, a couple characters at least down the line in terms of the most the you know, in terms of characters I really think about when I think about this movie. So there's there is stuff there, and it's it, you know, and you do kind of you you are kind of prompted to consider like how what has gotten her to this point uh because i think the the facts of her life the 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 uh, you know everything feels quite lived in in terms of her marriage in terms of her her attitude towards her her, her child and her adopted sister in terms of her, her kind of fuck you attitude to the whole world like all of that seems like it's been all that seems credible in a way that 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 teases a background that of course the movie doesn't have time to dig into I kind of wanted to get into uh, sort of the money scene of the movie, which is kind of what I opened the keynote with, which is which is Elizabeth uh, asking the Dermot Mulroney character to to critique her body, uh, and I was curious uh, to just to ask what you believe sort of motivates her to want to do that. If it has to do with her kind of being at a crossroads in her career, is there something else um, worth considering there? Well, I think the the trigger point is is him talking about his own body in a way that only an, another person in her profession would understand, which then leads to her choice, which he immediately senses is an extreme <laughs> thing and crossing all kinds of lines that you just don't cross, but does it anyway because he's a big dumb dummy. Um, but, <laughs> and, and a little bit of a pervert. I mean, there's when, when she yeah, first well, I mean, says, if yeah. I ask you to do something weird, like he, he lights up, he definitely yes. thinks that she's offering him a, <laughs> a, some kind of sex act that he might consider transgressive. And then when he realizes what she wants, he still visibly, I think finds it transgressive and therefore exciting. And then afterwards, oh, no, he's I, like, I, I was, was this there. a weird I think, thing? I, I feel like he goes into that with great reluctance. Actually, I feel like I think I feel like he senses it's it's the wrong kind of transgressive. But but maybe uh, yeah, I I I disagree. I I think maybe if, even if he does go into it thinking of it as the wrong kind of transgressive, I think he gets into it. And mm. the fact that he calls her back later and it's just like, I really connected with you. I totally want to sleep with you again, <laughs> which is maybe not the best way to perpetuate a relationship. But I, I think he feels he can be honest with her because that that's what she wants. He really does seem to get into being able to share the truth with somebody. And I could see why in a profession that's just so much about, you know, polite and or self-serving lies. Especially about how people look. But what's her motivation? That's like where I like I still don't have like a firm answer for that in my mind. I guess like how I read it in the moment is, you know, she has lost out on this role for which she is told she was not sexy enough and then just had sex with the the guy that she didn't have enough chemistry with. So I think because she doesn't seem like really hurt or wounded by the experience. It almost seems like she's seeking kind of another form of validation almost. Like she wants him to kind of underline and acknowledge for her why she didn't get this role. Maybe just hearing him say it and having him hear himself say it gives her maybe just a little more power back in that scenario. Uh, Like everyone just kind of stops talking around the reason and says it on its face. But I also don't know if, you know, her bow-leggedness is the reason she lost out on that role. Oh, I I think the reasons that she didn't get that role are all over the scene where she auditions for that role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's 
almost as uncomfortable a scene, both because Kevin is all over her in such a creepy way and seems to think that he's being, you know, edgy, but like acceptably edgy in asking questions like, what kind of sex do you and your boyfriend have? And then, you know, the way he's sticking his tongue down her throat, like the the fact that she's sort of vaguely trying to put her arms around him in encouragement, but is mostly kind of pushing him away. The fact that you keep cutting back to the director and he kind of looks uncomfortable slash disgusted slash disappointed. I think you're probably right in that what she's looking for in the naked scene is an explanation and an answer. But I feel like it's a a question that we've already had answered. She's also looking for some confirmation because the scene is planted early on that she hates her upper arms, right? Yeah, that was the the one detail I was like, like that when he said that, I was like, ah, it's kind of affirming what she already at least thinks about herself uh, that specific part of herself Mm -hmm. because she specifically said that about her arms to her boyfriend and who would Mm -hmm. not acknowledge it this is this all feels like set up for the second uh (laughs) part of this discussion the second movie but uh, we'll put a pin in that (laughs) yeah i mean i think it's such an incredible scene there's kind of a, a flirtatiousness to it a little bit you know when the kind of the critiques gets going and he's there's some like you know, positive things that get said and you kind of, you can kind of joke about things a little bit. And it's just like every, you know, there are just these, these little like stabs that kind of happen that just sort of deflate the thing. And then, and then when it's over, she gets to this place where, you know, she's just has to go, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, and I think that you, Tasha had talked about uh, earlier about heavier places this film could have gone like 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 more dramatic places and i just think the i just think that that scene lands in such a good way in such a subtle or subtle a scene like that can can be the way she kind of leaves not 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 in a huff it's just you know she's not upset she thanks him uh you know of course she um you know, is disappointed and, and, and i'm sure upset by the by the by it but it's not like it's she doesn't let that doesn't project that in a in a particularly heavy way. It's just it's just all it's all extremely well orchestrated. I think on a on a writing from both a writing and an acting standpoint. I'm gonna throw out a completely different perspective on that, which is that when she runs out the door, it's because she's she's gotten what she wants, and the whole thing to me kind of felt like a little bit of a flip on the the idea of like a guy getting sex and then being kind of done and and ready to head out the door, which is something yeah. we see a lot mm. in movies and maybe sometimes in real life. Just sort of I I got what I came for. I hmm. think there's a real like okay, we did that, now I'm done, and I, I don't know that I necessarily need to still be in a room with you uh, to the, the way that she leaves there. But, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's that, how that, I, that's that, how I, I like took that. it. And I think it's okay. it's uh, in, reinforced when he calls her later and she basically just <laughs> ignores him and hangs <laughs> like, up on him. <laughs> and the whole thing where he's like, okay, can I, can I get you some food? Do we want to talk more? Like, just felt a, a lot like a very stereotypical, like, you're not going to stay and cuddle uh, kind of thing. I, I don't know. I, I think there's some, some play to that, some humor to that in the, the way it's set up. But as far as why she does it, I guess my other spin on it would just be she describes herself like to her mother as a narcissist. And I think that that's a big thread running through this movie is just everybody wants more attention than they're getting. You know, Jane wants attention from her doctor. Michelle wants attention from her husband. And when she doesn't get it, she seeks attention from her 17-year-old co-worker. Uh, <laughs> Annie is is blamed for seeking attention to the point where she plays dead in the pool just to get people to notice her. Like, everybody seems to be chasing not just pay attention to me and not just praise me, but pay attention to me more and and deeper and really see me like the whole idea of being seen i think didn't really come into vogue in kind of american mental health circles until well after this but i I think this whole movie is just sort of fundamentally fumbling towards that idea of what it would mean to actually be seen on a level that would that would satisfy you and that to me is what that scene is is her just saying like even if it's bad I want somebody to pay enough attention to me that I actually feel seen for who I am, what I am. 
On the the narcissism tip, though, like I feel of the the three grown women, Jane, Michelle, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth is the most self-aware by far about her narcissism. And, and like kind of a flip side of narcissism is self-awareness, <laughs> you, you know, or like that's kind of like the good uh, side of the narcissism spectrum of is self-awareness. And I think that, you know, simply her saying that, uh, that she's a narcissist illustrates that. But there are, she does see seem to be the most of the three perceptive about not only her sister and her mother's behavior, but her own, you know, she's she's self-critical, but that comes from a place of self-obsession. So it's sort of two sides of, of the same coin there. And I think that if you're thinking of it in terms of self-awareness, that is another kind of way to read the the naked scene as well as just her sort of having what she already suspects about herself reinforced by, by someone else. And like you say, being seen, even if it's her flaws. You know, I know her agent calls her a neurotic mess uh, or, <laughs> or some variation on that, but which is not untrue, but I think she's the most together For sure. uh, character in this film mm-hmm. in many, many ways. You know, if if your worst way of acting out is taking care of dogs, you know there there are worse <laughs> there are worse ways to 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 channel your neuroses. Although obviously that's not the only place those those get channeled. The agent, uh, not to sidetrack too much, but the agent is is one of many characters in this that I, I it makes me think: Are you actually good at your job? Are you because like it's is the doctor Michael Norrie's character is is he good? Did he mess that up or is he yeah. just? Or or does that thing just kind of happen? Was it unavoidable? It's it's kind of hard to tell. And and like, I think it's hard to tell from that audition for a lot of reasons if Elizabeth is any good as as an actress either, too. I mean, those are, you know, I'm not sure Meryl Streep could perform under those circumstances, but you also don't get that sense this is a a once in a lifetime talent who who is being denied, you know, the jobs that she should be getting. It's, 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 there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, of ambiguity in this film. Along those lines, I would add Kevin to that pile. You know, the <laughs> clip where she's watching him in a previous movie, he seems to be a pretty bad actor. And when oh, I, he, I think there's less ambiguity there. <laughs> when, he's res- when he's responding her to, when he's responding to her during the audition, it also seems like he sucks. Yeah. The, the various shopkeepers that she takes the art to, like they're not wrong about this art probably being unsellable and not something that they should should buy. But like the complete lack of. Uh, like any sort of persona that doesn't immediately slip and and turn into like yelling profanity across the store or just saying like really snippy and um, unpleasant things in front of somebody like there's there's a lot of not being good at your job in this movie. So you know who's good at his job is Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> he seems like he's very good at the uh, at me at doing a. Uh, uh, Wait, are you talking about the actor Jake Gyllenhaal or Jordan Jake Gyllenhaal the, the as photo the head? As, yeah, as the photo. Yeah, are you talking about guy? Jake Gyllenhaal or are you talking about Splooge? <laughs> Splooge, that's right. Yeah. Well, because I wanted, you know, I think it's time we talk about the men in this film. <laughs> Hello. Um, uh, so, like, because uh, I was thinking, like, they're well, all somebody. Please <laughs> they're think about the men consistently. Just terrible <laughs> in this film, except. Uh, you kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal, you know. He seems like a sweet kid. He comes off no? as a creep, and like he he fronts like he's a creep when he first gives her the the job interview. But mm-hmm. but he's actually you're right. I think he's definitely the most good hearted. Probably maybe well certainly the man, man, male character in in the film. But I wonder if also is like maybe he's just not old enough. Yeah, to he, yeah, he just hasn't like become <laughs> embittered the way all the, all the other men <laughs> yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. Well, we also, oh, I mean, we see that he's uh, he's some kind of a social pariah. Like, we don't know what the story behind his unfortunate nickname is, and we don't know how widespread it is, whether it's just these the two bullies that come in calling him Splooge. But I I think it's pretty clear that there's some background there where he was caught doing something with photos and that it's probably just like become his, his name and his rep at school. When Michelle asks him if he has a lot of friends... And he says, oh, yeah, I, I've got a ton of friends. Like the look in the, the this kind of cornered look in Jake Gyllenhaal's eyes in that moment, <laughs> the, the way he plays his response. 
you can tell a lot of about that character from just that moment from that line reading. I think that he's not like a, a toxic, hardened individual yet, but he is also needy and narcissistic and looking to be seen as exactly as much as any of the women in this movie. I also like how it's like how you see this relationship unfold. You're like, you know, that seems pretty inappropriate. And then, and then she ultimately gets ultimately his mom calls the cops on him. On her. That is so good. I, I think maybe I have the I, same I was funny. That's it. That's my favorite line of the whole movie. I think that's like that's such a brilliant uh, 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 bit. Just like that's the thing, that's the other thing about Nicole Hall of Center is just she's a really, really witty writer. And, and she'll, she's, you know, uh, you know, I think there's there are more. Uh, maybe more chuckles in the next film we're going to talk about but like she can really uh bring the comedy when need be and i think like i think that specific line i like the most of uh where she notices that she and jake gyllenhaal's mom have the same rope just a quick side note this is the the same year produced both donnie darko and bubble boy uh so it was a big year for for jake gyllenhaal is it worth even talking about the other men in this movie because they all kind of seem to blend into the same uh you know unpleasant uh uh you know person really i mean I, there's but not a huge could, amount we of talk a little about clark Gregg, just because it's it's always a pleasure to me to see him crop up in something i just i enjoy him as an actor and i don't think he's given a lot to work with here at least mm-hmm. compared to james legrow who i think at least gets a little more nuance as elizabeth's boyfriend in terms of i think there's little enough there that you could read him as somebody who is just really, really tired of this relationship where he doesn't ever get his own needs respected in any way. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't ever feel like she's listening to him. She's just talking perpetually about herself and also complaining about things that she made choices about and then like bristling if he responds in any way except with affirmation. Like, I, I think... You could read him as somebody who's better off out of that relationship, or you could read him as another malignant, Mm. toxic person. But Clark Gregg, I think, just sort of comes across as somebody who in another situation, another world, another relationship might be like a, a pretty affable, happy dad. And instead, what you get here is just he's he's so visibly exhausted with Michelle kind of being awful all the time at him. I, I would also be angry at a, a partner who leaves tiny, fragile <laughs> objet d'art in the middle of the floor and then accuses me of like deliberately sabotaging her artistic career when I step on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, no love for No love for Michelle for, from you, uh, Tasha. You, you've, you've gone hard. You've gone hard after Michelle. I, I should say... I love Catherine Keener in yes. oh, yeah. pretty much everything she does. I think she, I, th- I think any appeal in this character, which Scott, you see more than I do, comes from her, comes from her ability to play these bristly, needy, hurting, like toxic characters in just film after film after film and make them, if not approachable and fun, at least human you know approachable in a an an empathetic like i wouldn't want to be in a room with her but i understand why she's suffering kind of way i can never get enough katherine keener i it's she's somebody else who it's just always a pleasure to see her turn up in a movie she's got one of my favorite um silent moments of the film too when she's left alone at the hollywood premiere she has no business being at it she's just kind of standing there in the middle of it um with this awful fixed smile on her face it's just so clearly here i am at a party and now i'm alone now the fun begins what do i what do i do now well also then then talking to the agent who can barely who doesn't who can barely tolerate her own her sister who's her client definitely not going to have much to uh say or want to say to oh she has uh, something to say she has to she regales strangers with her childbirth story what what appears Uh, to be an older gay couple who are being subjected to her talking about how natural childbirth changed her oh that was great i love that part of the movie too so much good detail especially with it being a repetition of a story so we we get the impression that just kind of wherever she goes like this is her this is her go-to opener like here's the story of the time i pushed a baby out of my hooch without any drugs let, let, let me tell you total stranger who has stood still for 30 seconds yeah hall of center is so good about setting that kind of thing up and, and seeding what's going to come later but in a way that makes it feel like 
really casual and and, and natural. Um, and like childbirth. The second film as well. Mm. <laughs> yes, well, like and, childbirth. And just like a sort of ironic character beat and that, you know, this character that we see just being a straight up neglectful mother <laughs> has like no real interest in engaging with motherhood in her, in its current uh, form. Uh, you know, she keeps going back to the story of, you know, how she physically became a mother, but there's, you know, no real engagement with the the work of motherhood. And there's also the just the extra level of being told that the reason she didn't take drugs is because she's afraid of drugs and having her immediately gloss over that. Like the anecdote that defines her identity is I chose to do this. And then we find out that maybe she didn't really choose to do it. It's just a pathology of hers. There's just, there's a a rich, rich irony in that. As far as uh, her uh, and Bill's marriage, I think the film maybe puts its thumb on the scale just a little bit by having him have an affair with her only real friend. We we see her (laughs) in, in, in engaging with, you know, and obviously she, also has an affair and, uh, you know, as we've covered extensively, uh, behaves terribly uh, herself. But I feel like just like that brief shot we get of Bill and I don't even remember her, her friend's name, which Donna. Is Donna, yes. Is that the last time we see him in the film? Like we hear yep. him, but I think it might be the last time we actually see him. I don't know, like no, because uh, the the whole chair stepping on thing is at home. That's after afterwards. That. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. Because he comes home, and we know what he's coming home from. Right. But yeah, I feel like it just it just piles a lot of extra awfulness on him to kind of counterbalance hers in that in that one act. Because otherwise, it's just it feels very one sided. The uh, antipathy on her part. At the same time, uh, her antipathy leads to her kidnapping her own child from her bed while (laughs) deliberately trying to make sure that her husband doesn't hear her and wake up. Like the whole thing that we just saw Elizabeth go through where Annie wasn't in the house and she she broke down and called the police and was experiencing this panic. Michelle is setting him up for the exact same experience. He's going to wake up in the morning and his daughter's gone and he doesn't know why or when she disappeared. And it's something that the movie just slides right by. Yeah, again, I was I was not a parent when I first saw this film, but I think even I recognized that was probably not a great act of parenting. <laughs> one thing that I want to circle back to before we we close this one down and move on to another movie about narcissistic people and their anxieties is the the question of Annie. I really think that to some degree her her story is maybe too big for this movie and how like small and light this movie is. But at the same time, Keith, you said that you you think that Elizabeth is the person in this movie with uh, that most has their act together. Mm-hmm. And I would actually say that it's Annie. I feel like what we see of Annie as with so many of the other women in this film is ambiguous and and maybe missing a depth of detail that lets us know exactly how to read some of it. At the same time, Michelle is giving her so much guff about her weight, and she's definitely aware of it. She kind of like pushes it off on the other girl at the pool, but she doesn't, you know, she doesn't go on a crash diet. She doesn't fuss about it. She just tells other people like, it, it's fine. I'm not going to eat everything on my plate. Like she basically just pushes people away, like stop worrying about it. When she's experimenting with her hair, like she lies in order to get her big sister to help her because she knows she wants to try something new and see what it's like. And then she asks other people what they think, but she never seems all that like harmed or hurt by the feedback that she gets. Like she she wants to know enough to keep asking and even to ask Michelle, which speaks to a, a certain like desire for positive feedback. But at the same time, like she knows what she wants and she she goes and gets it herself, which puts her on a par with the kind of the smartest and most active adults in this film. There's still a lot of like toxicity and like questionable messaging that she's gotten, like her whole desire to take off her skin and and become white, her claim that an afro looks like clown hair. 
like she's very definitely getting toxic messaging. She's she's not a, a perfect character or necessarily a happy one. But she doesn't seem as needy as everybody else. She doesn't seem as caught up in herself. She seems like she's moving forward rather than looking for other people to reflect back on her, who she is. And that makes her a really complicated character that I think you could read a lot of different things into based on what how you want to see her and, and her messaging. I don't know that she's a happy character. And I, I definitely don't think that she's like a positive role model or that she's in a positive place. But I do think that she's maybe more together than you give her uh, credit for. Mm. Uh, sort of another element in the movies, you know, as as you say, complicated uh, racial messaging uh, that kind of feels like a not quite a mirror, maybe a, a, a bookend or other side of the spectrum with the uh, with Annie's relationship to her mother is the uh, black woman doctor who greets Jane when she wakes up when her handsome male doctor is back at home with his wife, I guess, um, and is very, very caring and warm to her. And, you know, it's looking at pictures of, of her children and, and being nurturing in a way that Annie doesn't really receive from her white adoptive family. And when you bring in Lorraine, her uh, Annie's uh, big sister, there is sort of this, you know, kind of trifecta of the nurturing black woman figure. It's a odd fit with this other uh, triad of white women. And like you say, complicated. And I don't think the film is attempting any sort of messaging there, but it is kind of creating a, a reflection. Though, though I do think the film suggests... Um multiple occasions that Jane is a good mother and is a good mother to Annie and, and Annie really loves her and misses her. I mean, you get that, you get that whole mm -hmm. bit where, where, where Annie's making the bed and getting ready for her mom to come, to come home. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and anytime, you know, just, just uh, Jane being in the hospital, you know, is, is I think quite unnerving for Annie. She wants to see her mother. She get, there's a scene where she gets quite impatient about how, about the fact that she can't, see her i think there's a there's a really strong bond between the the, the two of them that in my view the film suggests maybe i don't know i, I feel like i'm a, a little more skeptical of of jane's i guess motivations for adopting annie and again this is something the film doesn't really tell us and like there's certainly affection there you know but there's more to parenting than showing affection. And, uh, you know, as I said before, she's sort of offloaded uh, certain parts of the experience to Lorraine. And, you know, it definitely sort of expects her other daughters to take part in in raising Annie to a certain extent as well. I think Jane's trying and I think she has the I think Lorraine she has good intentions. Yeah. See, the Lorraine thing to me, I don't the, the Lorraine thing to me seems uh, an effort on on Jane's part to kind of I, I don't feel like it's offloading I feel like it's 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 a deliberate attempt to make have her make a connection with with an adult black woman I think is that I think that is that is the in, intent behind her being put you know putting the, into this program that that you know economically it, it doesn't make any sense I mean it doesn't make any sense for her to be in a big brother big sister program which which Lorraine eventually points out this is just something this is an in initiative a well-meaning if perhaps you know flawed initiative yeah. on Jane's part to find her you know a, another a person that she can identify with and, and can talk to her about things that that Jane doesn't know about I'm not saying it wasn't well-meaning but it is having Lorraine do certain hard work that she that Jane doesn't have to do well, it certainly I ends mean, up that way. <laughs> yes, although also isn't equipped to do. I, I kind of right. feel like Michelle and Elizabeth end up kind of more more so taking Lorraine for granted. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Because especially a, like Elizabeth's interaction with her when she quits, she definitely characterizes it as almost like, well, we hired you to do this yeah it's, you know? it's, like, it's like she's it's like she's a service person it's like yeah. she's sort of a, a nanny but also like a racial educator that mm -hmm. they've just you know she thinks that they're paying it's it's very transactional and very odd and lorraine kind of calling her short on it is probably a good thing although there's also something just a little weird about the whole idea of 
I thought I was going to be, you know, dealing with a, a, a black kid from uh, like a broken home in the inner city. I can't deal with how difficult this very like mild mannered child who lied to me once and, and played dead in a pool once is like, I, I'm not sure that you're prepared for dealing with a, uh, a a teenager from a broken home with real problems either there, Lorraine. This, there's a lot of assumptions going on here. I still think it was the joke that got Lorraine. And like, like, I think that was some of like, oh, there's a lot of ingrained toxicity here that I am not prepared to deal with. It also raises a question where she heard that joke. And right. Why she, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, there's a whole lot that's unanswered there. It, it occurred to me Lorraine's basically being asked to be, play the role of Yang and after Yang. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, For sure. Without, but, you know, you know the convenience of being a robot programmed right, for them. Exactly. But they do treat her exactly like that. Yeah. You know, throughout all of this movie, I just, I kept, maybe it was just the proximity to Welcome to the Dollhouse, but I kept thinking how this movie, how close this movie feels to a Todd Zolens movie without being as, as cutting and agonizing. You know, the, the same sort of conflicts and issues, I think, come up here, but they're just so much lighter and, uh, you know, the, the humor is just so much less dark. And that scene, the the naked examination scene, uh, the McDonald's scene, like there are just a lot of scenes in here that I could easily see at Todd, Todd Zelen's staging. He would just <laughs> write them in a way that would be excruciatingly uncomfortable instead of kind of gently, mildly humorous. Self-loathing, well, but make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could have paired this with uh, with Todd, a Todd Solon's movie, but but we've uh, paired it with another Nicole Hall of Center movie, uh, which we'll get to in the next episode. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh's most recent episode brings in Chicago Tribune critic Michael Phillips to talk about the best films of 2023 so far, including the movie we'll talk about next week. As for feedback, we got this letter from Kyle, a fellow Chicago critic, about a missing piece in our episode about the new adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Genevieve, want to read it? Sure. Kyle writes, hello all. Thank you as always for the fantastic discussions. I know I'm a bit late, but I just listened to the episode on Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and was surprised that there was no mention of race in the movie. I love the adaptation overall, but was frustrated by the race spending of Mr. Benedict and Janie without any real engagement of race. It felt like a change that could have really added something to a film set in the 1970s, especially a black teacher for mostly white children. But beyond the scenes of Janie's hair being prepared for a dance and Margaret's visit to a black church, neither of which are exactly substantive outside of representation, the movie feels colorblind in a way that feels almost irresponsible. It feels like an instance of having cake and eating it too to add people of color to the film without taking the time to address how their lives would have been different from the white people around them. I'm curious what you all made of the decision. I think it's a fair point, but it also opens up a whole other thing for the film to deal with that maybe outside the scope of the film. I, I, I guess it's kind of a can't win situation where if you have, if it's a less diverse cast, it's not, doesn't look great, but you're, you're, but you're right. Do you introduce these things? And it's, it is, you're sort of, there's a certain responsibility to maybe at least acknowledge them. I, I was just happy to see Echo Kellum. I, I really, I really like that actor <laughs> yeah. who, who played, who played Mr. Benedict. Um, and, and I thought that was a nice performance, but, but I think there's something, to, there's a point to the letter for sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, the the reason I didn't address it as an issue is because I don't remember the book uh, nearly well enough to notice race race bent characters. I think the one place that really stood out for me that kind of could have used more examination is the visit to the black church. Mm -hmm. You know, as as Margaret is examining her religious heritage and how she feels about religion and, and church, this seems to be the one positive uh, experience that she has. 
And it's the one experience she has that isn't expressly tied to a family member and with all of the baggage involved in that. And I ended up very curious, like, did, does she go back to that church? Does she does she make a habit of going to that church? Why wouldn't she? She seemed to love it there. And we see absolutely nothing to indicate a, a downside to it. So what conclusion did she draw from it? Like, what what effect did it have on her? And that's something that just doesn't really fit into the story in the book. So it's just kind of like hand waved and, and they move on, which I found to be kind of a weird choice. Yeah. I mean, all of that. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting letter because I, 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 it's something that it, um, it's certainly worth thinking about. Of course, it, and then it makes you kind of think about other films that are that are not terribly substantive outside of representation either. But I think that we expect a movie like uh, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is so perceptive and, and substantive about a lot of other things, to not miss something like this. You know, to to not just have uh, the, these characters here and leave them that leave them underexamined. Um, but uh, that, yeah, good point. Uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about You Hurt My Feelings, in which an insecure writer learns what her husband really thinks of her novel in progress. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when a new episodes drop. Until next week, don't just rip open that artisanal hand-drawn wrapping paper. It cost more than the gift we got you. 